Welcome to Live Well and Thrive, a podcast recognizing the hard work, dedication, and diversity of our team at Kaiser Permanente Northern California. I'm your host, Carrie Owen Pleat. I am so glad we are here today. Our topic is the unfortunate health disparities faced by our Asian American, Latin American, and African American Black communities. Our purpose today is not to lump these communities together. Actually, it's far from it but rather to look at the health inequities faced by each of these three communities through the eyes of seasoned, phenomenal providers and to hear their insights into how we can better address and serve the needs of each of these amazing populations. I'd like to welcome Drs. Jeffrey Bellotta, Thoracic Surgery, KP Oakland Medical Center, Brandy Williams, Internal Medicine, KP Woodland Hills Medical Center, and Sergio Gonzalez, Family Medicine, KP, San Jose Medical Center, to live well and thrive for this important conversation. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. So Jeff, we're going to start things off. You recently received a research grant to investigate health challenges in the Asian American community in the Bay Area. Can you tell us a little bit more about the work and maybe just help contextualize it for the listeners? Yeah, it was really special. Thank you, Carrie, for bringing that up. Classically, Asian Americans in California and a lot of places in the United States aren't always deemed underserved or have disparities. And they call that the model minority myth that they're all well-educated and we all speak English. But in reality, when we look at Asian Americans, specifically in our region of Northern California, many of them don't speak English and many of them are uneducated and many of them are foreign born. And so when we looked at it from my field, from a lung cancer field, we found out not only locally, but nationally, lung cancer is the number one killer in both Asian men and women, not heart disease. Yeah, I did not know that. Part of what we were seeing preliminarily in Northern California is that Asians versus other race ethnicities were not getting screening. That is, lung cancer screening is live and mandated and covered by insurance and has been shown to save lives. But our Asian Americans were doing the worst in terms of adherence to get lung cancer screening. And we wanted to know why that was. And we looked into it. A lot of it was cultural and language issues. So they weren't the classic maybe Asian stereotypes that some of us grew up with. This was real. And what we were finding that they had the worst adherence to lung cancer screening. They didn't even know that it was out there. And they also felt weird about going in to get their cancer check. There was a lot of cultural barriers that I learned during this study. The study is to improve lung cancer screening uptake by promoting a lay navigator. And I was lucky enough to find bilingual Mandarin and Cantonese community health workers through this grant because most of our patients that were in the Asian population don't speak English. And so we don't have to rely on a translator. We can go straight with these navigators. They can get them into screening, talk to the primary care provider, and talk to the pulmonologist. If the patients have questions, these navigators will help get them through it and say, no, it's okay. You can trust this. This is just a quick CT scan. It's harmless, all that type of stuff. I expect hopefully to see in the study that we can improve lung cancer screening uptake and hopefully save lives with the lay navigator versus what we do currently. I love that you you found this problem. I don't love that we have the problem, but if you don't know the problem even exists, how do you go and try to fix it? So congratulations. I'm really excited for the work. I'm wondering if Dr. Williams, if you, Brandy, if Sergio, if you guys have any thoughts on this conversation, what else would you add? Maybe Dr. Williams, I'll go to you first, Brandy. Well, it's such rich information. I just took some notes from you. And the line of work that I do here in Woodland Hills is complete care. And so we look at populations and diseases and what's most common. 
thinking about that lung cancer screening isn't pushed that hard about. So some of us are like, okay, how do I make this happen? How do we do it full tilt? Do we have resources to do all the CT imaging and all the nodules coming up and all the follow-up? What Mm -hmm. does that really look like? So I'm learning this from you right now. Oh, great. How about you, Dr. Gonzalez? I'm glad Dr. Velada shares this. I mean, language is essential. It's a way we communicate. So our patients getting a mixed message can lead to mistrust perceived discrimination and just emotional distress that'll lead to not getting services and delaying care. This is a constant problem in our communities. Our communities are definitely interconnected and face a lot of commonalities, Mm -hmm. but also their own individual needs. So I think the accessibility to get clarity in getting care is vital and very important to our whole attack on disease. So maybe it makes sense to take a step back because Jeff, you mentioned a little bit about this root of distrust within the Asian American community. How can providers or caregivers educate themselves to better interface with our patients? Yeah, I'm Asian American, but I'm fourth generation Japanese. So I've been here for a long time. So I had to learn a lot of this and doing a lot of this research and going out to the community to do this. The first words of advice for providers is they should actively involve the family. Most of these Asian patients, any patient, not just Asian, but they have family, usually, right? It's hard to do. I realize you can't do it in every specialty, but in my kind of unique specialty, lung cancer, you can. Doing it with a translator in the Asian community doesn't help. It's not as good. You use a translator, things get lost in translation, literally, especially in the Asian communities where there's Cantonese and Toshanese and Mandarin and different dialects of Vietnamese, like Southern Vietnamese versus Northern. And so what I realized is translators are much better than me just kind of speaking at them and kind of yelling in English. So in reality, (laughs) family members help. So get the family members involved. And then the second thing is for our Asian patients, a lot of our mothers and the baby boomers and even later the grandparents, they keep to a lot of their Eastern quote unquote ways of they keep a lot of their traditions, what they did for holistic medicine, natural medicine, a lot of herbal medicine. They think good diet will prevent them from getting lung cancer. So they think they don't need a lung cancer screening scan. Mm -hmm. And they take a ton of pills. The majority are these crazy herbal supplements that are like super strong and toxic. In fact, for surgery, I always make sure we stop all that because the bleeding risks of certain herbal medications are worse than aspirin and Plavix. So those two things, understanding that they actually do believe in different natural remedies that you and I as providers may think nobody does that anymore. To convert them over to say CT scan, what we consider modern medicine, they don't think of that first when they think maybe pill first, or they think maybe going to their chiropractor first. Right. It's their known history, right? Correct. That's what they were brought up with. Yeah. Brandy, what about you? How about for the African-American population? In terms of trust? Yeah. Let's talk about the root of some of the distrust maybe Mm -hmm. and how you think providers or caregivers can help educate themselves and sensitize themselves to better interface with patients. Sure. In particular, with the African-American Black patients, I focus a lot on blood pressure control, vaccines, and medication adherence. We are always trying to improve that. But I said, let's get a focus group together. So we got a group together and we shared, hey, we're the ones suffering with strokes and heart attacks more than any other ethnic group when we don't manage our blood pressure. We're the ones being admitted into the ICU for influenza because we're not getting the flu shot. So how can we do this a little better? Really, we walked away with the patients were like, just talk to us. Don't just issue a medication and say, take it. 
twice a day and then refill it. We're intelligent. Tell us why we need it, how it works, and what are some potential side effects. Just talk to us. There's this history for vaccines, right? With Tuskegee experiment, being told you have bad blood, they weren't being treated for syphilis. And other surgical experiments with female patients with gynecological issues, and they weren't given consent, and they weren't given anesthesia for surgical procedures. So even if the young African-American patient this day doesn't actually know about those specific things that happen in our history, it's that storytelling that our group does. Yeah, It gets in there, it gets repeated that we feel that we're guinea pigs and no one cares about us and they're just trying to kill us off. And so there's this huge distrust. And then we have limited conversation with our physician or our nurse. Yeah, it kind of almost reemphasizes that dialogue in the head about maybe they're not seeing me, not hearing me. They're not seeing me. I must be stupid to them, Mm -hmm. so they won't talk to us. And so, yeah. Yeah, I love that utilization of a focus group Mm -hmm. and kind of takes that old adage of nothing to the patient without the patient. Right. Always having their voice. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Sergio, what would you add? I can't speak enough to how interconnected our different groups are. When I think of the Hispanic community or the Latino community, we go back to the 1920s where you had the state and federal government that tried to impose changes into our traditional Mexican diet and it was changed to an American diet. In that time, worse outcomes were seen in Latinos. And nowadays you definitely see differences in Latin American individuals in the states versus native countries. We had over 16,000 people that were told they needed sterilization in order to continue with welfare. Sterilization without permission that was done with the eugenics program in Los Angeles from 1909 to 1979. And the other act that I remember when I was in school, Illegal Immigration Reform Act of 1996, that led to mistrust of not seeking services for the fear of getting deported. With that history, that builds on the distrust of the healthcare field. So talk to the patient, know their preferences. Where do they shop? What do they consume? These are things that do not require us to be an expert in the culture, but be open-minded. We all have the ability to ask questions and just get to know the person. In family medicine, primary care, we have long-term relationships. We can really pass these things on to our colleagues who do surgery or are doing the next level interventions because we know them so well. One other thing I would like to add is zip code-based care. We live in a highly affluent area here in the Bay Area. You've got Palo Alto, Cupertino, Saratoga, but we have the east side of San Jose. That area is seeing problems. So sometimes in these areas, there's zip codes where food deserts do exist, where there's a lot of fast food, but no healthy food choices. You're not going to see a store that supplements things such as a Trader Joe's. And study after study will tell you this, how genetics do not compare to where you live. Zip codes determine your life expectancy versus genetics nowadays. Yeah. I love what Sergio said about the zip code because you're right. I work in Oakland. Piedmont's right next door. So it's not all just race and ethnicity. It's also kind of where you live. You may do differently in Piedmont Mm -hmm. versus if you live somewhere else in Oakland. Uh Kaiser uses what's called a neighborhood deprivation index to go by the socioeconomic status and zip codes. Yeah. And so we do know that outcomes are worse based on not just on race, ethnicity, but where you come from. So I, I like to kind of call that out. I remember I trained in New 
New York and I started busting out when I had an endocrinologist come by. She coined the phrase flat bush diabetes. And so her information was that we have a higher incidence of diabetes in this group because of the surroundings. And because I actually lived in Flatbush when I trained and it was a strong ghetto where, I mean, who knew what kale was, right? So it was fried food, candies, flavored soda. I think about the culture and the surroundings and because we are what we eat, this is what we're subject to. So yeah, you won't see a Trader Joe's over there. Well, Brandy, I think that's an excellent point. So I love that we're having this conversation, even if we take small steps, if whoever's listening to this does something different about the care that they're providing to their patients or their communities to bring us to a more truly equitable society will have made a difference. So Sergio, we're talking a lot about disparities and I'm wondering if maybe you could help our listeners just understand a little bit more the difference between equality and equity. Yeah. When we talk about equality and equity, I always cite the example of a fence that's in front of a baseball field and you have three different sized individuals, one very petite, one middle height, and one tall person who can see over the fence. The middle height individual just has forehead but can't see the field and the shortest person cannot see. To be equal, you would provide them all with one box to step on to see the field. The tall person can already see the field, doesn't need it, but is on that step, is now seen at a higher perspective. The person whose middle height has now a step and can see the field, but the shortest person cannot see the field even with one box. When we relate to equity, now you'd redistribute the boxes for where the need is. The shortest person may need two boxes. The middle height person needs one box. And the tallest person now needs no boxes, and that is equity, realigning the resources to where the need is so that we can all do better. Yeah. Now, in a perfect world, you would remove the fence and that would be justice. But, you know, (laughs) (laughs) yes, we're working on the fence. We're working on the fence. (laughs) Sergio, I I think that's beautiful because I think sometimes people think about one-stop shopping or you just take a pill or here's the solution for you. And that's just what you've all covered today in your examples is that's not how you get to equity in care. So I love that example. Thank you for visualizing that for us. I think all of you have touched on this uh, a little bit. I'm wondering if, Sergio, if you could highlight for the listeners how language really plays a real critical role in care delivery and for health outcomes. Well, let me give you an example. And this is just to point how we can all learn about how language is important. When we're residents in training, we know all this Latin and we have these terms. And then in our roundings with patients for the first time, we're throwing words that mean nothing to the patient. And we slowly have to learn how to translate our language to a lay language and reconnect. We know both, but that bridge that makes us an excellent clinician takes a little time. All we have to do is to connect our languages, do the same with our patients. But each time on every patient touch, we have to readjust as everyone is different. So we have to be the experts on how to deliver a message to the level of our patients. In treating diabetes with my Latino patients, often a patient can receive the message, I need this medicine. They will take the medicine. Once they're better, they stop the medicine. Mm. We don't follow forward with the message to like really help them understand. In language, you need to clearly lay the message, explain the risks and benefits because the patients do want to hear them. 
to trust you. I think we need some cultural competence behind that language. Translation and delivery don't, don't always mean the same thing. So really goes back to understanding the message that you've got to deliver. I'm wondering at this point in time, if each of you could maybe share a story where you witnessed inequities, like we just talked about, and how you're using that moment to inform the work you do every day with your patients. Brandy, what would you say? So part of the work that I do is setting up some of the health fairs and provide health education to our members, right? For my patients to become more engaged in their disease, I want them to be experts about it. We need to provide the education for them, not through Google, but through KP, through our Center for Healthy Living. So we get a bunch of patients together, give content, for example, hypertension. Then we would bring our African-American patients to it. And maybe 5%, 10% will actually come. I mean, literally like five patients would show. So I thought, what's the most common referral that African-Americans ask for when I'm with them? And it's actually dermatology. Mm. So I thought, oh, let me go talk to my derm chief, a friend of mine who is Caucasian. And I went to her and I said, hey, would you join me? I'll do the hypertension piece and you do the derm piece and focus it on hair and nails for African-American. She said, Brandy, is great. I'd love to do that. I trained in St. Louis. I am perfect for this. We um, got together. We had 100 patients come. Wow. That was the most we ever had. And during this whole health fair, we checked their blood pressure. We got them medication and had the lab open for them. So it was really cool. They loved it. I mean, I had patients coming to see me afterwards that were not on my panel just to say, thank you. I'm 81 years old. This is the first time I ever bought sunscreen. I didn't know as Blacks that we needed to use sunscreen. And I'm like, really, you paid to come in to tell me this? You know, let me give you your money back. I mean, no, 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 I want to see you. No, let's just talk. I want to go over my stuff. I said, okay. And so I teased them with me. I did my hypertension workshop first so that they would stay and see my colleague, Dr. Torsky, do the dermatology, hair and skin and nails for African-Americans. And she's Caucasian. But what I'm getting to is I wanted to help our Black patients to not have this thought that people who are not Black maybe will not appreciate them and maybe not understand them. So to have my brilliant dermatologist speaking to the problems that concern us and who is not Black, that was just beautiful. I mean, she was a rock star. Great partnership. At the end, all of them came up to ask her more questions and everything. I wanted to just get rid of that myth Uh for my cultural group that only Black physicians and nurses can appreciate and love that. Oh, how beautiful is that? And then you think about all of the Eight, I think it's 81-year-old patient yeah. with sunscreen thinking yeah. about the melanoma that might be yes. prevented from this experience. So that's fantastic. Saving lives, one health fair at a time. Thank you, Dr. Williams. Sometimes we make mistakes. So even if you speak the language, then you may make a mistake. I want to remind the listeners, there are 20 Spanish-speaking countries out there and not all of us are of Mexican descent, which is a common mistake that's sometimes made. So I had a patient who had diabetes. We'll call her Marie. Diabetes was marginally controlled. We could do better. So I had a long conversation. I was in residency at that time and I broke it down to her, gave her the nitty gritty on things. And the message she left with that she needed to eat more steamed food. And that's what I said. And so she took it to heart. Three months later, Maria comes back and we drew some labs. 
the numbers were off the wall. Her cholesterol had gone up. Diabetes was out of control. And like, oh my gosh, Maria, we, we had such a fulfilling conversation. What happened? And I followed everything you told me to the letter. You know, I, I ate steamed food for breakfast. I ate steamed food for lunch and steamed food for dinner. Well, what did you eat? So I ate tamales. <laughs> if you know, tamales are steamed. And so this yes. poor woman had been steaming her tamales. And so <laughs> I used as an example. Oh, at, Oh, I, know. I made the mistake of assuming. And so we have to be careful with what we say and understand the patient to deliver a message, maybe in smaller chunks to really make uh, changes. So that's my personal story. Oh, I love that. And I'm sure that was right-sided during that visit. Yes, yes. <laughs> no more tamales. No more tamales. <laughs> or at least maybe, maybe infrequent. Yes. <laughs> Not breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Oh, poor thing. Can you imagine? <laughs> oh, geez. Yikes. I so incredibly appreciate you sharing the stories and sharing with each other. This is just constant learning and it's constant learning for all of us. And I'm sure it's heading home for some of our listeners. Jeff. Yeah. In our Asian American community, the biggest issue that I've noticed young, healthy Asian women that don't smoke, 30s to 40s, that are seeing lung cancer. Asian women are diagnosed with stage four lung cancer, which is late stage when you can't do as much for it than stage one, but they're usually presenting with symptoms, that cough, that persistent cough that goes along for a long, long time. A lot of women, Asian women, especially that don't speak English, the Eastern way is they take care of the family. Your traditional role of the woman takes care of the household, even though she's working and she's taking care of three or four kids. She has to make sure there's dinner ready. They've all had that cough. They've all had this. They were given reflux medications. And this is nothing against primary care. Yes, yeah. a lot of times you do need to give reflux medications. A lot of times you do need to give asthma medication. A lot of times you need to give Zyrtec for post-nasal drip. But what I would like to stress is that most recently in a study that we just came out with and in the American Cancer Society that lung cancer in women aged 35 to 54 years old, that is the incidence that is rising. All the rest of lung cancers, Marlboro old man, 75-year-old guy that used to smoke, yes, that is true. That is going away. We don't see that as much anymore, but we do see young Asian women have the highest incidence right now in that group. And it's usually people that do not smoke or have a very light smoking history. I see that we have to start looking at that because you don't want to necessarily stereotype, right? You don't want to just say, oh, Asian woman, she's got lung cancer. But you just have to know that this is a risk factor yep. now that we're seeing. Right. That's the thing that I see on a day-to-day -day basis. It's really hit closer to home to me mm -hmm. of how do we change that mindset? Maybe something else going on. And well, your research is definitely helping people see this differently. We know the issues that we're talking about today, they don't disappear overnight, but every incremental step we take, learning from our colleagues with specific relevant knowledge, just empowers us as a community to just be better, to serve our members better, to serve our community better. We're just so privileged to have all of you at Kaiser Permanente. What's important is providing the information to our patients in a way that the patient is willing to accept and listen to it and that we honor the autonomy of our patient to make the decision after we provide the information. So these are really conversational or social skills that we clinicians will always need to practice and that they will be adherent to our recommendations. Just as in my examples that our African-American members said, I appreciate the physician and the nurse would just talk to me a little bit more, explain things. And even with that, we have to do that in an appropriate way so the patient will receive that yeah. and follow that. Adding honey to the... The medicine, right? Mm -hmm. It goes down a little bit smoother. Yeah. 
Yeah, I learned a lot. I think one of the underlying themes that I can learn as a clinician for all race ethnicity, for everybody, but specifically maybe somebody that may look different or different race ethnicity is to just spend a few more minutes with a patient. If it could just be a little bit longer than what we normally do, the fast pace, just to really talk to them and hear them and just spend maybe 20 seconds, right, in the room with them, that can maybe make a difference. So that's something that I can learn on, especially as a surgeon, we have to work on that. You know, there are multiple factors that can impact your health way beyond your genetics environment, where you live and whether it's Brandy, your example of Flatbush or language access and being able to speak the same language, Sergio, your conversation around the tamales, which I will not soon forget. <laughs> And history and how history, though maybe hundreds of years ago, 50 years ago, 20 years ago, that those stories are pervasive in the different cultures that have not mm -hmm. perpetuated trust with physicians or in healthcare overall. That is something we need to bring to the table, as all of you are suggesting in our conversations with our patients and understand that, again, it's more than genetics and we have to truly see who's in front of us. And Jeff, as you were saying, spend that a little bit of extra time. It's not a long time, but a little bit of extra time to make sure we see our patients and truly hear them mm -hmm. for what they're telling us to get to a point of a true equity. Yeah, see beyond what we're taught in the book sometimes. Something that I learned that's helped me that even got me here to talk about Asian American things is the Kaiser Permanente does have the business resource group, the API one at KP, and there's a Black African-American one, there's a Latin one. But that really is a huge community that really wants to focus on their unique differences and then uniting them. I think that's what's really gotten me more involved is having a group already aligned so I don't have to just find my team. I, those resources are out there at Kaiser. It's a big company and sometimes you have to go find it a little bit, but once you do find it, you can really thrive. Well, I love that. What a great way to end. Thank you so much for spending a little bit of your time with me and just everything that you're doing for our patients, your care, your compassion, your commitment to truly seeing our patients and hearing them, the beautiful, authentic selves that they are. So thank you so much for what you do every day and for being on the podcast today and sharing your wisdom. Thank you. You guys. Thank you, Carrie. And I'm so glad you're participating with the BRGs. Keep up the great work. Good. I strongly encourage you to check out the show notes, you know, that text below the podcast where you can find links to more insights, research, and best practices. I invite you to share what's on your mind, ask a question or suggest a topic or guest. Send it to livewellandthriveatkp.org. And whether you're listening on your commute or during a down moment, keep those comments coming. And of course, I'd like to thank you, our listener, for tuning in to Live Well and Thrive, a podcast recognizing the hard work dedication, and diversity of our team at Kaiser Permanente. I'm Carrie Owen-Pleats, and we'll see you next time.